0: Ready? Hey, y'all, let's go ahead and take our seats. Let's pray together. So, this morning I had like a a tie between two texts. So, maybe, should we pray about this one? A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near me uh, because you're with me. Should we pray about that one? Or Shall we pray about it? It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to his name, to declare his loving kindness in the morning and his faithfulness at night. So who wants the first one to pray for? Come on, seriously, first one. Who wants the second one? Bunch of wimps. We'll go with the second one. All right, here we go. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we can give thanks to you. Um, and just even thinking about that word, that that's a response to you doing something, that's a response to who you are, it's a response to your action, it's a response to your active presence, it's a response to your work. And so we want to grow in our thanks because that means we're growing in experiencing what's always been true and is true right now, that you are for us, you're with us, that you've accomplished as the scripture says, great wonders, mighty deeds. And so, Lord, we're going to ask for ourselves right now that we would grow in seeing your wonders and tasting and resting and relying and rejoicing in your mighty deeds, And we'll know that's happening when all of a sudden we're, like, thanking you for stuff. So, we ask that right now for us. And, Lord, we so want others, those that we... Are in families with loved ones, neighbors, community, community groups, our church, friends, um, those we do life with, those we work with, those that we said we pray for. Oh Lord, we ask that they would see your wonders and grow in experiencing your mighty deeds. And that thankfulness would just start spontaneously happening in their life. And so we pray for them now. And then, Lord, we pray for your church. We pray for this church. We pray for your church in Waco. And we pray that uh, there would be such... A recovery of seeing your wonders, of experiencing your mighty deeds, uh, that there would be a growing, uh, inexpressible, life-giving, energizing thankfulness springing from your churches, springing from pastors, springing from church leaders, springing from ministry leaders all over the city springing from all your people all over the city in such a way that we become human beings and we become salt and light and we become friends and we make friends and we have gospel conversations and all of a sudden what is normal ordinary christianity is normal ordinary christianity oh lord would you grant that for the sake of waco and for the sake of Texas and for the sake of this country and for the sake of the world. So the text we're going to look at is the power that arrived so that this would happen. And so, Lord, fill us with your spirit, your church. Grant this incredible work for the sake of your people, for the sake of the world you love. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, so Tuesday, Tuesday starts the most exciting, life-changing, transforming, guaranteed you will never have never read the Bible like you're going to learn to read it and study it on Tuesday for the next six weeks. So Tuesday from 6 to 730 Uh, It'll be for the next five weeks. Then we got spring break, and then uh, you'll have a longer assignment, which will be great. You'll have a week to work on putting all of it together so that you actually have a message. You actually have a communication piece of the passage that we're studying. And we'll see if we could share it when we get back from uh, spring break. So that will be the goal. So this Tuesday, we start. Uh, Reading the Bible like Jesus read the Bible. Studying the Bible like Jesus studied the Bible. So that your hearts burn. And so that you're an instrument by which when you open the scriptures, other hearts burn. Not because you're such a great teacher, but because the one that only burns hearts shines on the page in the text. And we're going to learn how to do that. You wonder, like, sometimes maybe we look at a text and are like, how does Jesus, and then all of a sudden you see it here. You're going to learn how to do that. So if you want to learn how to do that as the rest of your life, for the sake of your family, uh, maybe you're thinking about ministry, uh, maybe you just want to be a good churchman, a churchwoman, this is the class for you. Tuesday, 6 o'clock to 7.30. You're going to need to pick up. We're going to have some copies of this book that you can buy. Some dude wrote it, but... Pick it up, okay? Gospel Ark by Jeff Hatton. <laughs> uh, that's kind of funny. Uh, never thought. I mean, this is what's so funny, y'all. If you were to get all my high school buddies together and say, hey, do, what do you think, like, 20, 30 years from now, your buddy Jeff would write a book? They would laugh in your face. It's kind of cool. All right, you ready? 50 years ago, the quarterback of the New York Jets, Joe Namath, was at a pre Super Bowl press conference. It was a couple of days before Super Bowl III in Miami. Great place to have a Super Bowl in February, right? Or January in those days. His team, New York Jets, playing the Baltimore Colts. New York Jets, massive underdog. It'd be like Baylor playing Michigan this season. <laughs> yeah, I said that, right? I was going to use, like, an a NFL team, but, you know, Michigan will work. <laughs> Michigan will work. The backstory story is Namath has a what? A reputation, right? He uh, was known to play drunk on Sundays at times from partying the night before. He was known to have, how do I say it, lots of girlfriends. During the season, he wins an award. And his opening acceptance speech goes like this. I'd like to personally thank all the single girls in New York for their contribution to me winning this award. Yeah. So he earned the nickname Broadway Joe. So Navis steps up to the podium. You got cameras everywhere. You got mics all in his face. You got people pressing around him. And he goes up to the microphone, and he says, The Jets will win the Super Bowl. I guarantee it. And they did. They absolutely did. And that line, I guarantee it, became a cultural phenomenon like, come and take it. Like, live free or die. Or like, this is Sparta, right? It became this. Iconic saying in the culture of the United States. So, I'm making a pre sermon prediction this morning. This text will blow you away. I guarantee it. Why, you ask? Two reasons. One, This text is not what you think it is. Two, you've been looking for it your whole life. And it's in this text. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're covering all of chapter two, but we're not reading all of chapter two. We're going to read the first like 13 verses, I think. But during the course of the sermon, because Malachi and I are like Jedis, he knows when to put the text up, like in the middle. I'll make reference, and boom, you're going to see it. And we might just like point out some things on there so that you see it, so that seeing and hearing becomes the same. All right, so when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under God. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language or our own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, so this is east of the Roman Empire. It'd be Iran today. And residents of Mesopotamia, that's Iraq today. Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, these places are all covered in Acts 13 through 20. Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, now we're going south into North Africa. And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, what does this mean? And there it is, right? That's the point of the text. That's the dominant thought of the text. That's the subject of the text. The answer is the subject. This means that Acts, the Bible, God wants you to experience what the answer is. What does this mean? This text wants you to know what it means. This text, God, wants you to have it clear to your mind and real to your heart what it means. This text wants the answer to reach you and renew you. God wants this to transform your life. What does this mean? That's the question. But here's the problem. We haven't done a good job answering it. We've been given weird answers, stupid answers, confusing answers, super saint answers, exhausting answers. Answers and answers and answers that haven't helped. Just like the original hearers. Look at verse 13. But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So what does this mean? So the first documented stupid answer ever recorded in the history of this day is they're drunk. All right, y'all. Let's uh, pray. Why don't you take your seat? This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. We ask that you would Fill us with your spirit, that you would move and work in ways that we cannot account for because we can't. We're weak, you're strong. You do all things, we don't. But you work in such a way that we actually begin to will and to act in the way of you. And so that's what we're asking. Those of us that know you, would you work in us to will and to act? And those of us don't, would you work in us to actually encounter the one, the word in this text? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, and all were amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, what does this mean? You've been looking for this answer your whole life. Your whole life. Christianity doesn't make sense to me, you say. God, he's the great unknown. The Bible, it's a foreign language. Jesus, Lord, liar, lunatic, the church, weird people. And then what about science? And then what about all the other religions? And then what about other planets and life forms and aliens? And then Christianity doesn't make sense to you. And all were amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, What does this mean? You've been looking for the answer your whole life. Something is missing, you say, and I can't shake it. I go to Asbury, I go to Passion Conference, I go to the most powerful church in town, I go wherever. The Holy Spirit is working. Wherever the Holy Spirit is present, wherever the Holy Spirit is doing something extraordinary or is there, I'm there, I go. I follow spirit-anointed leaders. I read all the books. I listen to all the teaching on every platform. I study the Bible. I do theology. I practice spiritual disciplines. I do high church. I share my faith. I disciple others. I give generously. I do ministry. God uses me, but something is missing, and I can't shake it. And all were amazed and perplexed, and we were saying to each other, "What does this mean? You've been looking for this your whole life. I can't fix me," you say. I can't fix my marriage. I can't fix. My kids, I can't fix my relationship with God. I can't fix the way I think. I can't fix the way I feel. I can't fix the way I do life. And all were amazed and perplexed. And were asking themselves, what does this mean? You've been looking for this your whole life. Life is overwhelming, you say. Kids, kids, kids. Stress, stress, stress. Exhaustion, exhaustion, exhaustion. I hate school. I hate my job. Do I have any real friends? I want to be married. Who has time to read the Bible and pray? Who has time to go to church? And all were amazed and perplexed and were saying to one another, what does this mean? You've been looking your whole life for this text. So what's the answer? What does it mean? The first ones that got it were amazed and astonished. That's the first documented response. The second documented response is they're drunk. So the first stupid interpretation came right there. So, here we go. What is the answer? What does it mean? Uh, the answer is this. A sound. <laughs> Look at verse 1. But the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, I'm going to give you the literal translation. Here's the literal translation. And it happened suddenly from heaven. A sound. A sound, a sound, and it happened is how Bigfoot sightings are documented. It's not how discipleship manuals start, and it happened. It's not how a lecture begins, it's not how spiritual techniques start in a seminar, and it happened. It was October 31st, Halloween, midnight. I hear a howling in the distance. What is that? Shaking. I take a shortcut through the woods. Of course you do. And it's a spooky woods. Of course it is. And while you're going through, your flashlight starts flickering. Off. You stumble forward. You make a wrong turn. You wander straight into a cemetery. And it happened. A sound from heaven. It's not just any sound, it's a heavenly sound. You see that? It's a sound from heaven. It's not an earthly sound, it's a sound from heaven. What does a sound? From heaven, sound like? Verse 2 And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. A wind that's mighty and rushes. Like a whirlwind? Like a tornado? What kind of mighty wind sound? Where? Or what does the sound from heaven do? Answer, verse 2, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What does the sound from heaven do? It fills empty things. Houses and places and people and hearts and relationships. Churches, and homes, and children, and marriages. All kinds of places. What does the sound from heaven look like? Saying it even sounds strange. What does a sound look like? Verse 3, and dividing tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. It looks like tongues flickering tongues, of fire. And all were amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, what does this mean? You've been looking for the answer your whole life. What's the answer? A sound. If you don't get that, you will never get anything else that happens in this text. And you will never get the Christian life. And you will move into the realm of being weird. And you will move into the realm of being stupid. And you will move into the realm where this text, this passage, does nothing for you. Except exhaust you, make you anxious, and make you depressed. You will strive for the rest of your life to Asbury and the Passion Conference and this and that and over there and him and this teaching and that teaching and you'll never find what you're looking for. Sound, sound, sound. Acts 2 is everything about sound. Tongues, tongues, tongues. Speaking, speaking, speaking. Words, words, words. 17 times in the first 14 verses are reference to sounds and speaking and tongues and communication. And then the rest of it, the rest of the whole what? 23 verses, the rest of Acts 2 is a sermon. More sounds, more speaking, more words. And all were amazed and perplexed and were wondering... What does this mean? You've been looking for the answer your whole life. What is the answer? The Holy Spirit. You've been looking for the Holy Spirit your whole life. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes looking for you. And it Don't miss this, the greatest sign, the greatest evidence, the greatest proof, the greatest confirmation that the Holy Spirit is present, that the power of the Holy Spirit is in a place, that the Holy Spirit is creating and filling and active and working, the greatest evidence is sound. Sound, sound. We hear things, heavenly things. We hear heavenly words. We hear God speak. This is why Paul, when he goes to the church in Galatia, and they're so... The church, the book in Galatians is written to unhealthy Christians in an unhealthy church to get them healthy and to get their lives and relationships healthy. And so they've confused what the engine of the Christian life is. They're trying to figure out what the Christian life is. They're trying to figure out how you grow in the Christian life. They're trying to figure out how you do Christianity. And Paul's explaining to them, listen, justification is not only how you come into the Christian life, but it is the engine of the Christian life. And the Holy Spirit is given to you, supplied to you, fills you, reaches you, transforms you, changes you. You grow in it. It is stimulated in you. How? How? Do you want to understand the Holy Spirit? Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he tells them? Then let me ask you only this. Did you receive, present tense? Did you get supplies, present tense? Did you get the miraculous workings, present tense, of the Holy Spirit in your life by works of the law or by hearing? Hearing. Sound, sound, sound. This is why Luther says, do you want to know what the most important organ is for the Christian? The ear. Not the eyes. Not the feelings. Not the hands. The ear. Sound. You've been looking for the Holy Spirit your whole life. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes looking for you. And it happened. So listen. Hear the sound. Christianity doesn't make sense to me, you say. Let's look at verse 13 together. But others mocking said they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. So the first documented response was amazement, right? We saw that. This is the second. So this is a misinterpretation. It's missing the mark. It's not interpreting what's happening rightly. Now, you need to know that this is what the Bible does, this is what life is all about. So, it's like this the Bible is documenting. God events everywhere, from Genesis to Revelation. You've got God events taking place all over the place. But what the Bible does is it not only records the God events, it tells you what they mean. That's called doctrine. That's called theology. That's called teaching. So the Bible does not, God does not leave it up to us to figure it out. But it's so fascinating because we are the people in the Bible. So events happen in the Bible. We'll see people interpret the event and miss it completely, just like you and me. And then God sends a prophet, which is a God-ordained mouthpiece, interpreter, a wordsmith of heavenly things. And that prophet says, thus saith the Lord, this is what it means. And everybody goes, oh. But then some people say, they're drunk. When you go to the Gospels, you go to like John. John loves doing this. He loves taking crowds because the crowds will always see what Jesus does and they misinterpret him every time. If you're in Mark, the disciples, they see what Jesus does. The disciples don't get it right. The first person to get it right in Mark is a demon. So we can't be too hard on the stupid interpretations because we do that all the time. So the question is, why doesn't Christianity make sense to us? So what the Bible does is, again, it's this... this, multiplicity of images. The Bible wants to communicate truth to us. It wants to tell you what things mean. It wants to tell you the event, the truth, and then it wants to tell you what it means, interpret it for you, theology, doctrine. And the way it does that is it gives you images to communicate truth, and it gives you ideas to communicate truth, a multiplicity of them. So when you get to the atonement, that's a big old word, but you've got words like justification. You've got words like propitiation, redemption, all trying to communicate via ideas the gospel. But you also have images like sacrifice, like a mercy seat, like a goat being driven into the wilderness with all the sins of Israel on it, into the realm of the dead, where the Lord of the dead lives. Those are phenomenal images, right? So when the Bible wants to tell you why we have such a hard time, it could give you an image like spiritual blindness. That's an image. We're spiritually blind. We misinterpret it all the time. Did Pharaoh get the parting of the sea right? My gods are for me. My gods have parted the sea. The Israelites are drunk. And he headed straight into that thing. No, he did not get it right. In Acts 2, Peter actually tells us. So the Bible could say, listen, the reason why we get it wrong is because we're spiritually blind. But here's another reason. The Bible could just give you an idea and interpret, you know, give you a proposition. People don't like propositions today. But propositions in the Bible aren't just propositions. They're the power of God. These words do what they say. These aren't like empty words like you and me. So, In verse 14, but Peter, if we get verse 14, so Peter is now going to tell everybody what it means. But Peter, God's mouthpiece, God's interpreter, interpreter, the apostolic witness, which becomes the apostolic word, which becomes the New Testament, right? But Peter, standing with the 11, lifts up his voice and addresses them, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you. Listen to me. Give ear to my words. I'm going to tell you what it means. For here it comes. These people are not drunk as you suppose. For it's only the third hour of the day. This is hilarious. Dudes, it's only 9 a.m. Are you sure you haven't been drinking mimosas this morning? But this was not uttered through, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In other words, this is what it means, brothers and sisters. God's going to tell you what it means. So he quotes Joel. Joel actually interprets what's happening at Pentecost amazing. God tells us what it means, right? So Christianity doesn't make sense to me. Of course it doesn't. Number one, we could say the image of we're spiritually blind. Get it. But here's the number one reason. You need God to tell you what it means. You're never going to figure it out on your own. You're going to look at that sea part, and you're going to go, let's go for a swim. You're going to hear about Jesus and you're going to see him rise from the dead and you're going to just be so perplexed and so befuddled and so confused and you just can't grasp it. You need God to tell you what it means. You need help. So, read the Bible to understand what it means. You need an outside-in help, not an inside-out help. You're not going to get help Inside, you're only going to get help as you hear what God tells you to be true. It's amazing, is it not? Something's missing, and I can't shake it, you say. Let's look at verses 16 and 18. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And what that means is your sons and your daughters shall have access to God's word. Which is the same thing as saying access to God's spirit. Hear me. This is the most abused text maybe in all the Bible. In the Old Testament, there were only selected prophets, selected kings, and selected priests that got direct access to the words of God and his spirit. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, the word of God and the spirit are married. There's never a word without the spirit. There's never a spirit without the word. Watch. Just read your Bible. You'll see it. But today in Christianity, we separate the word ...and the Spirit. We have the Spirit going on a movement... ...and we have the Word building a church... ...and the two are in competition ever since. Right? In the Bible, they're together. They're married. Where one goes, the other goes. In fact, the Holy Spirit... ...is what inscripturated, inspired... ...the words of God. So, your sons and daughters shall prophesy... ...have access to God's Word or God's Spirit... And your young men shall see visions and have access to God's word or God's spirit. Not just the kings, not just the priests, and not just the prophets. And your old men shall dream dreams. These are all access to God's words. In the Old Testament, you had access to God's words and access to God's spirit. God would work through kings and work through priests and work through prophets, through dreams and through visions and through prophecy. See? And in those days, any male servants, female servants, in those days, I'll pour out my Spirit. So here's the point. At Pentecost, what you're seeing is the Holy Spirit no longer just being poured out on special anointed people, but on everyone. All flesh. You. You're not missing anything. You have the Holy Spirit. You don't need to go to Asbury to get the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Yes, read your Bible and pray. Because you have the Holy Spirit, not to get the Holy Spirit. Yes, share your faith, make friends, have gospel conversations, disciple people, be a leader in the church, be used by God, give generously, do ministry, because you have the Holy Spirit, not to get the Holy Spirit. I can't fix me, you say. I can't fix my marriage. I can't fix my kids. I can't fix my job. I can't fix the way I think, feel, do life. Can't fix the way I handle money. Can't fix the way I work or not work. I can't fix me. Here's the answer to that You are right. Now, please hear me. You are right. And the moment you get that is the moment you'll start changing. But when you won't moan and say, I can't fix me, I can't fix me, you really think you can because you keep complaining about it. And you go into victimhood. I can't fix me is the most bold, brave, courageous words. Uttered on the planet. The Bible calls it repentance. I can't fix me. But there's someone who can. And that's called faith. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is still with us today. He's saying, listen, maybe, until Paul comes along, in my opinion, the greatest man that ever lived was King David. And he couldn't fix himself. See, there's his grave. Let's keep reading. So being therefore a prophet. Whoa, David was a prophet and a king. And a priest. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn on an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that this Christ was not abandoned to Hades. Now, don't miss this. He wasn't abandoned to Hades, but he went there. Jesus went to hell. Jesus went to the realm of the dead. Why? To fix you, to get you out of there. Let's keep reading. Nor did his flesh see corruption, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, he's ascended, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God, he has poured this out, and this is what you're seeing. And this is what you're hearing. And this is what is happening. Amazing. So, stop trying to fix yourself. Repent. Stop trying to be your own savior. Repent. Stop trying to deal with your sin on your own. Repent. Repent means I'm going to stop trying to be my own Savior, and I'm going to turn in faith to the only one who can. And notice the response of 3,000 people. They were cut to the heart, and they said, what do we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent, stop trying to save yourself. You've been doing it your whole life. Be baptized, which means identify with Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. He's the one that deals with your sin. He went to hell so you could be taken out of it. Life is overwhelming, you say. Kids, 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 stress, stress, stress. Who has time to read their Bible? Who has time to pray? Who can go to church and take out an hour or whatever this is? Answer, you are right. Life is overwhelming. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's this great line, and I tell my kids this all the time. I go, listen, the Old Testament says that that God carries your burdens, that He's the burden bearer. And even in the New Testament, Peter says, cast your anxieties on him because he's the burden bearer. You know what that means? You're not a burden bearer. You weren't made to be a donkey. You can't bear your burdens. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You need someone else to do that for you. So, Look what Pentecost does. Look at what the Holy Spirit does. Verse 40, this is how it ends. And with many other words. Isn't that amazing? Many other words. It could have been with many other signs and wonders. With many other whatever. with With many other words. With many other sounds. With many other tongues. With many other speaking. With many other Bible. He bore witness. He preached. And continued to exhort them, he preached, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, because you're in it. Stop trying to save yourself, turn to the Lord that does. So those who received what? His words. His words is the same thing as receiving the Spirit. Were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You need... I'm exhausted. Life is overwhelming. You know what you need? Here's what you need. You need words. Good words. Life-giving words. Holy Spirit Jesus words. Gospel words. So my, here's my exhortation. Peter had an exhortation. here. So here's my exhortation to those of you are, that are exhausted. And life is overwhelming. Just get there. You know? If you've got to drag, your, if, if you've got to crawl, <laughs> if you've got to crawl, just get there. Crawl there. Get your rear end there. Just get there. Get there. To words. To words that speak you back to life again. To words that the Holy Spirit fills and inflames and enlightens and enlivens and forgives and justifies and sanctifies and puts you back together again. And sends you out, broken, messed up, yes, but he wants to use you. What a great way to live. Just get to the words. And some of you are thinking, okay, I'm just in my one exhortation. Just get to the words. So I don't know if I can get to the words in my week. I don't know if I can carve out time to read the Bible. Because when I start reading at night, I fall asleep. I can't get up early enough because the kids have already beat me there. Then here's what I say to you. Get to church. There's only one ordained ministry day by God in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? So you can cut out all the other ministries. Yikes, people will go crazy. Wait, no youth ministry? No, what, what, whoa, what's happening? In the Bible, there's only one that God says, "This is what I want you to do." I just want you to get there. It's Sunday worship. Today, we talk about Sunday worship like it's, it's like the lowest entry form of being a church member. You know, like oh, you're just a you're just an active you just go to church. Dang, you're not in. county group B on Monday night, you're not in flaming whatever on Tuesday night and you're not being baptized on Thursday. And it's like, the Bible says, you know what? The divine event of the week, the most important thing you do that is the engine for if you do anything at all is going to church. But then again, maybe words and sound aren't that important. Acts two is the sound (laughs) of dry bones rattling. Let's pray.